Welcome to Location Matters, the podcast from NGIS, covering the world of mapping and location technology. The Geo for Good Summit was held in Sunnyvale, California in September. It brings together change makers, nonprofits, and scientists to share, learn, and collaborate with each other on new initiatives for creating a sustainable planet. I'm Sarah Butler, and you're listening to Location Matters. We're fortunate enough to have both Nathan Eaton, Executive Director at NGIS, and Sam Atkinson, Manager at EO Data Science, who attended the Geo for Good Summit, and they're joining us here today on the podcast. Guys, thank you so much for coming along. So let's start off with why you attended the Geo for Good Summit. It's a long way to go, San Francisco, from where you are in Perth. What did you want to get out of it this year? Well, it is a long way to go, you're right, Sarah. A brutal direct flight from Melbourne to San Francisco of about 14 or 15 hours, but totally worth it. So Sam and I went across to the Geo for Good Summit. I mean, we've been part of the Google Earth Outreach community and team for five or six years now, and we've done some fantastic projects as part of that collaboration. And so the Geo for Good Summit was just a really good opportunity for us to go and connect with that community, connect with the actual technology people, so the Google team that's developing the sensational technology that we're making the most of, but then also to have a really good look at all the projects um, that different community members are actually getting involved with around biodiversity, sustainable development goals, reducing disaster risk, some really significant earth-changing projects uh, that are being produced as part of this collaboration. So Rebecca Moore, who is the director and founder of Google Earth Outreach, announced some pretty exciting things around the integration of Earth Engine with Google Cloud's AI platform, which seems to be, you know, you know, everyone's talking about that at the moment. It's really exciting for anyone that's in this industry in particular. Maybe, Sam, you can tell us about the new integration and what it means, what the integration means for people already using Google Earth Engine as well. Yes, well, I think for me, this was definitely the most exciting part of the whole summit. And I think also it really signals Google's intent on when it comes to applying machine learning in the Earth observation space. So to quote Nick Clinton, one of the Google developers who presented there is Google's going all in on machine learning when it comes to Earth Engine, which is really exciting. So Google's been you know industry leader in machine learning for a long time. So to see them really throwing their weight behind machine learning for Earth observation is really exciting. Most of the new changes really relate to streamlining the integration of machine learning workflows with kind of the existing Earth Engine workflows. So now it's really fairly seamless to go from Earth Engine to Google Cloud and the AI platform and then to apply those models back into Earth Engine. And really what it means is that once your model's developed, once all that hard work's done, it's it's basically sitting there ready to be easily applied through a a new module in Earth Engine. And that means you can apply those machine learning models kind of on the fly within a, you know, front-end website or straight into your analysis. And it's, it's really exciting. It seems like Google Cloud is becoming a really fundamental part of what they're doing there. You guys mentioned to me when you got back that the Google team mentioned that their Google Cloud offering has grown from 12 products in 2012 to 214 products now in 2019. Doing what you do, Sam, how significant would you say the role of Google Cloud is when it comes to the scalability of it with Earth observations? Yeah, well, scalability has always been one of the, the real key challenges with Earth observations. I mean, fundamentally, we're dealing with, you know, really huge raster data sets. So as soon as you want to do a long time series or a large spatial scale, you're, you're dealing with literally terabytes of data. And just the management in traditional workflows of that data has been absolute pain. So what Google Earth Engine's doing with the integration with Google Cloud really takes away a lot of that pain. 
But then what it also opens up is a, a lot more opportunity to test hypotheses or to do research because you get your answers so quickly, you don't have to wait overnight for the next answer to change a parameter and try again. And really being able to iterate quickly allows you to get much more advanced results within kind of reasonable project timeframe. And you guys were lucky enough to be invited to showcase some of NGIS Australia's good work with coastal risk. I guess there's two parts to what I'm interested to know about being able to demonstrate that. Number one is how did it come about that you were invited to show it? And what was it like there on the day showcasing that? What kind of feedback did you get? And the second part is how do you think or what kind of impact do you think Coastal Risk Australia has had since 2016 when it was launched? So to the first question in terms of why we were invited to present on Coastal Risk, the Coastal Risk projects that we're involved with, so there's Coastal Risk Australia, Coastal Risk Tonga and Coastal Risk Vanuatu. This work all started actually with a collaboration with Google where we really wanted to improve how climate change science was communicated. And that's the focus of the Coastal Risk websites. It's to try and break down those barriers. So instead of leaving governments and policymakers with large reports that try and get the message across in terms of the risk and need for adaptation for climate change, that we actually present those findings through an interactive map. And by presenting those findings through an interactive map, people can go through policymakers, anyone that's working in the government departments that this is relevant for, and actually zoom in on communities and actually zoom in down to street levels to actually see the localised impact of climate change. And what that really does is it allows people to personalise climate change science. And I think the real value is when you personalise science such as this, you get better results and better buy-in. So that's one of the main advantages we think that the Coastal Risk projects have brought to the table is the fact that people can understand the impact to them. And for Pacific Island countries in particular, absolutely on the front line when it comes to climate change. So they're the lowest emitters, but they're the ones that will feel the brunt of it because of all the low-lying coastal areas where most of their population is located. It's so important that they understand which communities are most at risk and by when. So that fundamental information and data allows them to plan, well, how do we actually protect these communities? We can't build seawalls around entire islands. So how do we identify the communities most at risk and how do we protect them? So that whole aspect of having the information at hand to effectively adapt to climate change is really at the core of what we were trying to do with Coastal Risk. And to give you an idea of the impact of having this information freely, openly available, but communicated through a very easy to understand medium, such as a map. When Cyclone Pam ripped through Vanuatu and destroyed around 75% of the buildings, I think back around 2015, because we'd already engaged with a lot of the local communities, particularly a lot of the chiefs, one of the communities in particular used the information available from the Coastal Risk Vanuatu to actually identify where he should rebuild his community. The fact that the area that they were located in was high risk from inundation now and it was actually one of the key areas that was, was impacted through the cyclone. So by having that information available that he could see, he could then plan, well, this is where I need to move my community to. So that kind of grassroots, real direct impact was, was great to see through the Coastal Risk projects. How do you think it was received at the conference when you were showcasing it? Yeah, really well. The thing with Google, and I think Sam alluded to it previously, is it provides that performance, it provides that scale, and it provides that platform where you've got everyone being familiar with Google Maps. So there's no barriers for people understanding the information, so it's just so effective with communicating it. And a lot of the people we engaged with over at the summit were involved in research. Yeah, a high proportion. Absolutely, yep. They 
really grabbed hold of the fact, well, this is how we can communicate our research. And that's one of the key things we try to do at NGIS and EO Data Science is trying to operationalise that data science and making it easy to get those last mile applications so that we can engage with end users. Along with crisis mapping initiatives, uh, the summit also helped to elevate the voices of minority groups working in STEM. One of the breakout sessions was with the Navajo Nation speaking about the Plus Codes project, which I think is super interesting. Can you tell us a little bit more about that project, Sam? and how this will empower remote communities. Yeah, I thought this was a really great project. It it kind of drives, well, it's a solution kind of driving at the problem of many of the world's people don't actually have addresses. So it turns out that in some Native American reservations in the US, they don't actually have street addresses, which then makes it hard to get a bank loan or apply for insurance or do a lot of those other things we all kind of take for granted. It's also an issue around the world in slum areas, in a lot of poor nations, People and communities know where people live because they'll say it's the blue house at the end of this street around from the bank. But that same bank won't give them a loan because they don't have a street address. It makes it hard for them to get jobs and insurance, etc. So really Google is, is trying to drive at giving everyone an address to really enable them to engage with a lot of services that we take for granted. And on those plus codes, one of the things that Sam mentioned that's really struck me was the limitations that not having an address actually introduces. So Sam made the point there of not being able to get a bank loan. You've also got the fact that these people won't be counted in census activities. All of the things that relate to just having a physical location all come as part of it. Um, And I think one of the great things for, for Google to be involved in a project such as this is that it's based with Google Maps. So Google Maps has a billion active monthly users. So the ability for them to take the most prolific, ubiquitous mapping platform globally and then augment it to give all locations essentially a short code sounds tremendous in terms of the application. So it was a really great project that was showcased. I wonder how Indigenous communities here in Australia could be getting involved with that when you speak about it, because I know that with Indigenous Mapping Workshop Australia and we're really trying to, I guess, make people aware of how they could be using mapping as well, but I'm sure that there are a lot of people in remote regions and or remote areas of Australia that could be getting amongst that project and learning a little bit more about it too. Yeah, spot on. And I think one of the other things we noticed from the summit was the level of engagement with Indigenous communities. So Sarah, you mentioned the work that, that you've been involved with in terms of uh, the Indigenous Mapping Workshop for Australia, which was a great success this year. We also, over at the summit, had uh, the people that are involved with the Indigenous Mapping Workshop in New Zealand. That's correct, yes. And also in Canada as well. So really strong focus from Google in terms of engaging with those Indigenous communities, and I agree. I think the links there from Plus Codes to those type of activities is strong. That's the thing that I love about going to events like this. You know, it is a big investment of people's time and their energy to go along. And was one thing I know about Google is that they can really put on a conference and they really do bring together some inspiring content for everybody that's there. And, and I'm sure that, you know, alongside of the Plus Codes project that there was a lot of initiatives being discussed Um, What were some of the standout, I guess, talks in the plenary sessions for you guys? So for me, there was some fantastic applications for deforestation, which is quite topical with with the the fires in Amazon. I think one of the, the key things that I took away was all of these projects that have the ability to use multiple sources of satellite imagery now. And I think that's really what Earth Engine opens the door for. So previously, we would have been looking at a lot of these projects around biodiversity, deforestation, climate change, and we'd be thinking about, well, what imagery do we use? But now it's more of a case of, well, how many different imagery products do we need? 
So we had, I think there was a great project for deforestation in the Amazon where they had, I think, overall coverage using Sentinel-2. So broad scale, very cost effective, what's free to access data that provides overall coverage. When they find an incursion or they find some deforestation, then they'll actually use what's called a tip and queue function to actually then procure high resolution commercial imagery just for that area that they need it in. So you don't need to actually invest in commercial imagery across the entire area of interest, which for the Amazon is a very large area, but you can actually get the best of both worlds. Full coverage, but then dive down into the detail where you need it, which I thought was pretty impressive. Yeah, the other component that I thought was really impressive was um, a project, again, in the Amazon to um, automatically compare which deforestation was actually illegal versus um, approved logging or deforestation and to automatically generate reports in a correct format that actually gave the the Brazilian government the opportunity to prosecute people to know exactly where it was, when the deforestation happened and what is the extent of it and allow them, give them something that's really easy to go and prosecute because a problem that was explained in context of that was that the vast majority of clearing in the Amazon is, is illegal but the scale of it is such that they just don't have the resources, the capability to um, identify it all and then prosecute it. So that little step of kind of taking all that earth observation data and operationalising it down to just a simple report that says this location is illegal logging was, I thought that was a great next step to kind of simplify the enforcement component. I was doing some reading about some of the deforestation projects and it's pretty amazing how far technology has come where you can find out information like that now and couple of clicks but you know before how long would that have taken it's just amazing how far we've come yeah definitely and I think that's one of the the benefits once again of, of what Google are trying to achieve here is they're trying to break down those barriers so as Sam mentioned before one of the key issues of machine learning with EO at the moment is the barrier to actually get the data in train your model and then execute the model but then it's also the ability to be able to develop those last mile applications um, which is engaging with the end users so Google are just trying to break down those barriers and to make it easy for people to have most impact that they can. You were both involved in running the Buildathon at the summit. The Buildathon teams came up with 25 new projects, and that was across agriculture, disaster mapping, and all of this and more in under six hours, which is outstanding. Were there any kind of standout projects from this session for you guys, and how are you going to apply the things you learnt at the summit back here in the work that you're doing now? So probably uh, I'm just trying to think what the standouts for me. I mean, one that I was really excited about, um, I wasn't expecting to see it in the Build-A-Thon, but a a group of really talented people got together and decided, well, we're going to write or help to build community tutorials on how to use Google Earth Engine and related tools and also to look at how do we integrate this into a curriculum? You know, how do we make this teachable? How do we set, I suppose, the right scales on these tutorials so that they're discrete pieces of work which can really help in the education component of it? And with the way that Earth Observation is is growing as both a science and an industry at the moment, one thing we definitely need is more people involved in the industry. So to see a group of people focusing on how we educate it was uh, yeah. I was, I was really pleased to see that. Uh, yeah, I agree with Sam. And then for me, to build a thon, I've been involved in a few of these type of hackathon type events previously, where uh, people that attend get given, say, a bucket of data to work with, or maybe even yeah. GIS software to work with. What really came across for me was the way that Google are building the the code editor and integrated development environment within Earth Engine and managing all the data workflows. You can go from zero to a hundred really quickly. So you mentioned before, Sarah, that we only had six hours. 
for me, it was really impressive what the actual groups came up with within those six hours. And I don't think Sam and I can take any credit at all for None where whatsoever. they got to. Um, but some of the projects were, once again, around deforestation, a really cool project for planning around refugee camps and monitoring refugee camps, which is a significant issue and requires a lot of data, a lot of alerts, a lot of monitoring. Arctic ice came up quite a lot for reasons that I didn't appreciate. I thought it was, a lot of it was related to uh, climate change and the rapid ice sheet melt, but actually, in effect, some of it is related to actually planning for trips for scientists where they actually need to understand the state of the ice to get from point A to point B because if they get it wrong, there's no plan B to that. So that was a really cool project that I liked. Obviously, there was water quality projects that were very effective, uh, land cover mapping, and just the ability from them to go to a concept right through to, well, this is what it looks like, and here's an actual output within that time was, was really impressive. Yeah, another one I liked in there as well was an automated approach to um, damage assessment after you know wildfire events, and again, it was it was kind of the angle on why that's important, which I found interesting. And it was as much as anything, it was about the people involved, their families, trying to work out. Well, I evacuated from that area. There was a fire. Is my house okay? You can imagine that'd be a hugely distressing event for a person. So to actually be able to help them understand, yes, my house is intact versus it's not, really, I suppose, helps them to deal with what would be a pretty traumatic event. Some pretty inspiring stuff by the sounds of it, guys. And I'm sure we have a lot of listeners who, I guess, maybe want to learn more about Google Earth Engine, how they could be using it, what some of the use cases are in different industries. If anyone wanted to get started with Google Earth Engine, where would you recommend that they go to start? Our first step, so at NGIS, we've set up a separate vehicle to actually represent Google Earth Engine in particular to the market. And that's what Sam's come on board with NGIS to, to really manage. So the company is called EO Data Science. So the first step that we would recommend is for people to jump onto that website. So just eodatascience.com. And that's got pointers to everything you need in terms of Google Earth Engine, some showcases of some great projects, some links to articles where we talk around data and other applications. So it's a great place to start. And if anyone wants to learn more about the Geo for Good Summit that was in California and the work that was showcased there, where should they go? Um, well, first step is to use Google to search for Geo for Good. Um, have a look for the breakout sessions. So that's basically an itemised list of all those sessions and nearly all of them now have the slides yeah. up and nearly all of those slide decks contain a, a lot of links to further information so if you're interested in a specific topic then go for that and also I believe Google um, will be posting a lot of videos from sessions which are recorded so stay tuned for for when those start to come online. Well that's all we've got time for today and once again big thank you to Nathan and to Sam for joining us. You can subscribe to Location Matters on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Stitcher. You've been listening to Location Matters, the podcast from NGIS covering the world of mapping and location technology. To find more episodes or to read our blog, check out our website, ngis.com.au.